Hey mate, 40 here. There's a stealth condom law making its way through Congress that I want to discuss. One of the downsides of an individualist culture is that you have to negotiate everything. So in an individualist culture, the, the deal comes first. In a collectivist culture, the relationship comes first. But uh, let's first of all, let's check in with Tucker Carlson, see what's up with Tucker, then talk about the differences between individualist and collectivist society. Individualist society, you have to negotiate all your transactions. Collectivist society, the relationship comes first. Here's Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tony Fauci back in the news. One thing few people know about Fauci, when he says he knows medicine, he's definitely right. He's been around it for a long time. Tony Fauci graduated from medical school almost 60 years ago. He's 81. That means he's three years older than the average life expectancy of an American man. It means he's 16 years past the age at which the average physician in this country retires. We're not calling Tony Fauci old, but at this point, he's probably not buying any long-term municipal bonds. If he were his investment advisor, you'd tell him to day trade. Yet Tony Fauci is still working. In fact, he's one of the longest serving employees in the entire federal government. He's almost certainly the highest paid. Why is that? Because Tony Fauci is that good. The term national treasure comes to mind. Decent people understand that. Drive through any neighborhood with high concentrations of college-educated professionals with desperately unhappy personal lives, and you will see the yard sign shrines erected in Fauci's honor. Thank you, Dr. Fauci, they read, capped with a perky little exclamation point with a heart at the bottom. Thank you for being you. And you can actually understand their gratitude. Fauci is the man who got us through the pandemic. As the coronavirus wafted from a Chinese military bio lab in Wuhan and settled over the United States, Tony Fauci was the man Americans looked to for guidance. He was our Sherpa, our diminutive spirit guide. Do these masks actually work, we wondered? No, they don't, Dr. Fauci replied firmly. Quote, there's no reason to be walking around with a mask, he told 60 Minutes in March of 2020. But that turned out to be not quite accurate. In fact, there was a reason to walk around in a mask, but it had nothing to do with public health. The experience of being forcibly masked was so unpleasant and so humiliating, it distracted you from other questions, such as, where did this virus come from anyway? As someone who had helped fund the development of COVID with your tax dollars, Fauci was strongly in favor of you being distracted, so he soon changed the guidance. He upped it. Soon Fauci was demanding that we mask up including outdoors and exercising, even alone in your car. And so we did. By January of 2021, even that guidance had proved to be inadequate because people were still persistently asking, where the hell did this virus come from? So Fauci had to go farther. He declared that Americans must wear two masks, one on top of the other with no air holes to breathe. This, he said, was, quote, common sense. So a lot of people did it. But Fauci didn't rest there. By December of 2020, he had checked with science and concluded that actually... One of the main risk factors for COVID-19 was your family's ancient religious observances. Those were the real problem. So Tony Fauci went on NBC News to cancel Christmas. A warning and a plea from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Should people now cancel their travel plans for Christmas? To the extent possible, don't travel, don't congregate together. That was a tough one for a lot of people, even the double masked ones. Americans love Christmas. They love their families. Many of them still love God. But Fauci had spoken. Science had spoken. No more Christmas. So countless Americans spent Christmas morning alone. 
But still, it wasn't enough in the end. Dr. Fauci looked around this country and saw people making human connections, experiencing warmth and intimacy with one another in the middle of a global pandemic. Talk about reckless. So Fauci stamped it out. Going forward, he told us, you must never shake hands with another human being. That is, if you don't want to die drowning in your own fluids in a COVID ward. Would you agree that drug and alcohol use increased during these lockdowns? Well, I, I'm not sure the lockdowns itself did it. And I'm wondering why you're asking me about lockdowns, because there were not complete lockdowns in this country. Oh, there weren't complete lockdowns in this country, but in fact, there were. Most people obeyed, but not everyone. Some people persisted in shaking hands with one another, or even celebrating Christmas. Others wore only a single mask, and those people, we can report with mixed feelings, died. And they died alone because, due to science, Tony Fauci prevented their loved ones from seeing them, from holding their hands in their final moments on Earth. But it was all necessary because there was a global pandemic. In the end, you will recall that Tony Fauci realized, as a scientist does sometimes, based on research, that only big pharma could save us. We couldn't do it ourselves. We were too weak and selfish. We needed Pfizer. The entire country was going to have to get the COVID shot, every one of us. And anyone who refused would be crushed, yelled at, ostracized, fired. In the affluent neighborhoods, the places where people believe in science, in this house they believe in science, places like Bethesda and Brookline and Aspen, the population gratefully complied. But in the rest of the country, there remained cells of ignorance and superstition where people resisted the vaccine. Strangely, at the same time, many of these primitive people also had somehow high-skilled, highly essential jobs, including in healthcare. They were nurses. They were EMTs. They were airline pilots and cops and Navy SEALs. But they were all summarily fired, their careers and lives destroyed. But it wasn't sad. It was necessary because they were killing the rest of us. As Dr. Fauci told us, there were two things we needed to know about this pandemic of the unvaccinated and the COVID shot that could fix it. First was that the vaccine absolutely prevents COVID infection. Watch. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Simple. So take the shot and you're never getting COVID. Done. We'll get it. The second thing that Dr. Fauci told us was that Pfizer had made something far more impressive than your own body. Pfizer was smarter than nature. Natural immunity was a joke compared to the COVID vaccine. There may be the need for yet again another boost, in this case, a fourth dose boost for an individual receiving the mRNA. And then the issue of vaccines actually, at least with regard to SARS-CoV-2, can do better than nature. I want to make sure people keep their masks on. I think the idea of taking masks off, in my mind, is, is really not something we should even be considering. It is, as we've said, a pandemic and an outbreak of the unvaccinated. Vaccines can do better than nature. That's why this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That was Dr. Fauci's message. It's still his message. Despite the fact that yesterday, and here's the news in this story, Dr. Fauci announced that he himself has been infected with the coronavirus. That's right. Dr. Fauci is COVID positive, despite double masking outside, despite skipping Christmas, despite his strict regimen of celibacy and no handshaking, despite four separate COVID vaccine shots, Dr. Fauci got sick anyway. Now, this seems like an important moment. What does it mean? Well, if you live in Bethesda and have a Fauci sign in your yard, you know exactly what it means. It means we need more vaccines. 
Pfizer is still the answer because Pfizer is always the answer. Fauci delivered that message today without flinching. This virus is changing and we need to keep up with it. In order to do that, we've got to do better with new vaccine platforms such as nanoparticle vaccines. We cannot proceed with that unless we get additional funding. Importantly, we need to both prevent infection and transmission. We know that we cannot do that unless we get a highly effective mucosal or intranasal vaccine. Okay, so testifying on the need for vaccines from isolation, having been infected after getting four of them. Quote, we need to both prevent infection and transmission. But wait a second, said skeptics who don't live in Bethesda or Fauci yard signs. Weren't the first four vaccine shots supposed to prevent infection and transmission? Isn't that why you fired all those nurses and pilots and Navy SEALs? Shouldn't you acknowledge the lie you told for years and apologize to them? Give them back their jobs with damages and grovel before them begging for forgiveness before you move on to get another mandatory vaccine? And while we're at it, the skeptics pointed out, can you tell us, Dr. Fauci, how many Americans have been killed or seriously injured by the first shots that you mandated? Well, many thousands, we know that. But how many exactly? Is anyone keeping track? Researchers at the CDC, along with scientists at Emory, Vanderbilt, and Duke, recently concluded that the mRNA vaccine significantly increased the risk of potentially fatal heart damage in young men. So, Dr. Fauci, what exactly is the cost-benefit analysis here on giving that vaccine to young men? Be specific. Now, a normal bureaucrat would have withered under questions like that, but not Fauci. Fauci is a man of science. In fact, he is science, as he once explained. Science and Fauci are identical. You'll notice you never see them together in the same room. There's a reason for that. So Fauci didn't bend. He doubled down, pressing for the mass vaccination of all American children over five. Watch here his bravery in the face of harassment from Rand Paul, who's also technically a doctor, but a skeptical one and therefore anti-science. The government recommends uh, everybody take a booster over age five. Are you aware of any studies that show reduction in hospitalization or death for children who take a booster? Right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that that's the case. So there, there are no studies, and Americans should all know this, there are no studies on children showing a reduction in hospitalization or death with taking a booster. The only studies that were permitted, the only studies that were presented were antibody studies. So they say, if we give you a booster, you make antibodies. Now, a lot of scientists would question whether or not that's proof of efficacy of a vaccine. If I give you 10, or if I give a patient 10 mRNA vaccines and they make protein each time or they make antibody each time, is that proof that we should give 10 boosters, Dr. Fauci? Uh, no, I think that is somewhat of an absurd exaggeration. Oh, oh, oh. Notice the brilliant facility with language here. Dr. Fauci doesn't actually answer the question. Instead, he dismisses it out of hand in a very scientific way as, quote, absurd. That's how a scientist talks. Questions about efficacy, whether the drugs you prescribe actually work, mean nothing compared to questions about federal funding. Federal funding is what matters to a scientist. In fact, federal funding was the whole point of Fauci's testimony today. He was there to let Congress know that as a man who's been vaccinated four times and still got COVID, he can tell you firsthand we're never going to beat COVID without more vaccines. And to get that vaccine, we're going to need to send billions more tax dollars to Tony Fauci. There's no way around it. It's science. But still, 
Rand Paul, clearly more a witch doctor than a physician, wasn't fully convinced. Where's all this money going? Rand Paul asked. Are you getting any of it? Watch Dr. Fauci's brilliance on display as he answers that question. Over the period of time from 2010 to 2016, 27,000 royalty payments were paid to 1,800 NIH employees. We know that not because you told us, but because we forced you to tell us through the Freedom of Information Act. Over $193 million was given to these 18 employee, 1,800 employees. Can you tell me that you have not received a royalty from any entity that you ever oversaw the distribution of money in research grants? Um, well, first of all, let's talk about royalty. That's the question. No, that's the question. Have you ever uh, overseen, have you ever received a royalty plan. payment from a company that you later oversaw money going to that company? You know, I don't know is a fact. Are you getting rich from these vaccines? Rand Paul asked Fauci's reply. You know I don't know as a fact. You know I don't know as a fact. Now, what does that mean? You know I don't know as a fact. Well, honestly, we don't know what that means. No one knows what that means. It is impenetrable, like a Zen cone. It's the sound of one hand clapping. And that's why it's brilliant. In any case, we are getting new vaccines. Of course we are, whether Tony Fauci is profiting personally from them or not. It really doesn't matter, though as his fans, we hope he is. And of course, the vaccine makers will need another dose of legal immunity in the extremely unlikely event their experimental drugs were to kill thousands more Americans whose deaths are then covered up and forgotten. That's just common sense, as Dr. Fauci would say. Another round of shots for everyone. We've got to beat this pandemic. Now, we haven't seen polls on it yet, but there's no question Americans are going to be thrilled by this news when they hear it. We reached out to Justin Bieber tonight for comment, but unfortunately, his face is paralyzed, so he couldn't respond. We'll tell you when he gets back to us. In the meantime, Steve Deese is the author of Fauci and Bargain. He joins us now. Steve, it's great to see you. So it does take, I think you've written a fairly critical book of Dr. Fauci, but a, a fairly brazen man with some real wavos to get up there. Okay, I think this is Tucker Carlson at his worst. There's no evidence thousands of Americans have died from vaccines. There's simply no evidence. It's a, a bizarre, unfounded, unfactual, irresponsible, stupid thing to say. Uh, if Fauci wasn't in that position, do you think that uh, whoever else would have been in that position would have been much more to your liking? No. Obviously, to achieve that kind of bureaucratic success, you have to be a certain kind of political player who's not going to be looked upon well by populists such as Tucker Carlson. So just as Russia would probably just be as likely to be invading Ukraine, even if Vladimir Putin was not in charge of Russia, and if Vladimir Putin drops dead tonight, I don't think Russia's just going to slink back to its borders and say, I'm sorry. Right? Russia invaded Ukraine because Russian leaders saw it as in their national interest to do so just as America would invade Canada or Mexico if China started building bases in Canada or Mexico. So overall, I think uh, Fauci and our elite did a better than average job with regard to the pandemic. Yes, initially they said no need to wear masks. Then they changed their minds. And uh, that doesn't make them bad people. Uh, vaccines don't perfectly protect against infection, but we do know they significantly reduce hospitalization rates and death rates. Now, people over 60 are far more vulnerable to dying from COVID or 
being hospitalized for COVID than people under 60. According to one academic study, the average COVID death loses 16 years of life. So on balance, it seems to me from, from where I stand right now that the lockdowns were on balance probably a good idea, right? When you have an influenza pandemic, reducing social interactions seems like a good idea. So yeah, there, there were some hard cases and some sad stories, but I think uh, overall we should have some gratitude for Big Pharma for their vaccines, for the bureaucracy in approving them so quickly, for Fauci's guidance. I, I think he's been better than average. And I think that our politicians, right, they, they stimulated an economy that was in free fall. So didn't our GDP go down about 32% at one point? And so I think overall, the politicians in the Western world, by stimulating the economy, sending out payments to people who are losing, losing jobs. I mean, we didn't have mass starvation. We didn't have rioting in the streets. So, yeah, I think overall, our leads did a, did a better than average job. And I, I'm glad that Tucker has a platform to make a, a populist critique. I'm glad that's out there. Now, I don't listen to right-wing talk radio. I'm sure they make fairly similar critiques, but you do need rejoinders to the mainstream critique. Now, I hold, generally speaking, with the mainstream perspective on COVID, but I'm glad that there are gadflies and critics outside the mainstream, you know, making us think, making us consider different perspectives. Everybody benefits from accurate criticism, whether it's Tony Fauci, Luke Ford, or Tucker Carlson. So let a thousand flowers bloom. Obviously, you know, I am no you know, great expert in COVID. I enjoy the, the mental, moral, fact-finding exercise and challenge of the COVID pandemic. But I obviously have no particular expertise. So one thing I, I do want to talk about is condom stealthing. Condom stealthing is sexual violence. Says, says a bill going through Congress. And uh, I really wasn't up on condom stealthing. And I didn't re realize that it was violence. But uh, Condom stealthing is sexual violence, Bill says. Here's what to know. Washington Post. Stealthing, the act of removing a condom during intercourse without the other partner's consent, is gaining attention among lawmakers. Analysis by Ann Brannigan. A one-sided burden. A betrayal. A violation. Rape adjacent. These are some of the ways women have described stealthing, a term used to describe the act of removing a condom during intercourse without the other partner's consent. While victims of stealthing tend to be clear about its harms, what has been less clear is how to define it. Is it assault? And could, or rather, would, the law do anything about it? Federal legislation introduced this month could offer not just clarity, but also a legal remedy for survivors of stealthing. One bill introduced last month would explicitly name stealthing as a form of sexual violence and create a legal pathway for victims to sue perpetrators for damages and relief. A separate bill, called the Consent is Key Act, would... Wow, do we really need political bills about this? I can't imagine engaging in behavior like that. If I was a woman, if I was in bed with a woman, if I was in a sexual relationship with a woman, there would have to be a great deal of trust between us. 
And so to, to violate the trust by stealthily removing a condom, that's a horrible thing to do, just like it's a horrible thing for a woman to somehow you know, capture your sperm and then impregnate herself uh, against your wishes. So these are just among the many manifold dangers when you have sex outside of a long-term committed relationship. So generally speaking, I think it makes rational sense for women, generally speaking, to regret every bit of sex that they've had that did not lead to marriage. Encourage states to pass their own laws authorizing civil damages for survivors by increasing funding for federal domestic violence programs in states that pass those laws. So what about the responsibility of women to be more selective with whom they go to bed? I, I know women who will get into bed naked with guys and then be shocked, shocked when those guys force them to have sexual intercourse. Right? Don't get into bed naked with guys if you don't expect, plan, and, and consent to having sexual intercourse. So what, what struck me about this story is its connections with vouch nationalism. So I argued a couple of weeks ago that to have a driver's license or to own a gun, you should have to have at least 10 law-abiding citizens vouch for you. And in certain cities, built-up areas, valuable areas, they should be able to set their own rules, maybe require 20 people to vouch for you before you get those privileges. So maybe you should have to have 10 people, 10 law-abiding citizens vouch for your good character before you have sex with people, or at least there should be some kind of database where people could look up the essentially uh, the social credit score of people or know how many people vouch for you that you're a decent human being. Yes. What do you mean I'm muted? I'm not muted, bro. I am here. I am with you. What do you mean? My, my, uh, my, my text says I'm coming through loud and clear. Are you lying to me? Are you telling me something that isn't true? Would you lie to me? So, I mean, people go crazy when they, they start having sex. Uh, they, they start becoming open to all sorts of things that they would never have considered before. I mean, apertures open up that would never have been opened before. Uh, choices in life open up that we would, we would never have considered before. 
we start shifting our alliances. That's why it's, it's probably in the public interest to know who a politician or any powerful person is sleeping with, because that person is going to have a profound, it's very likely to have a profound effect on somebody. If you're balling somebody, they're going to affect you. It, it would be weird to be having intense sex with someone and be completely unaffected and completely coolly rational. So when you become that vulnerable that you're going to bed with someone, like, you can be led into all sorts of dangerous directions. The federal legislation brought forward by Representatives Carolyn B. Maloney, Democrat, New York, Norma J. Torres, Democrat, California, and Ro Khanna, Democrat, California, mirrors a first-of-its-kind California law passed in October. That law expanded the definition of sexual battery in the state's civil code to include removing a condom without verbal consent. The U.S. House bill defines stealthing as removing any sexual protection barrier without the consent of each person involved in the sexual act. Stealthing is a grave violation of autonomy, dignity, and trust that is considered emotional and sexual abuse, reads the House bill, titled the Stealthing Act of 2022. So this is one of the, the downsides of an individualist society is that your transactions have to be bargained for. Right, you have to negotiate so many things, such as whether or not you you wear a condom, because each individual is an individual operating as an autonomous human being, and so everything has to be negotiated. And I become more keenly aware of this as someone who grew up in a Protestant atmosphere that was very individualist, and then I converted to Orthodox Judaism, which is very corporate. So the advantage of the corporate approach as opposed to the individualist approach is that the relationship comes first. All right, the, the transaction comes second, the relationship comes first. In an individualist society, generally speaking, the transaction comes first, the relationship comes second. And in a corporate society, fewer things need to be negotiated because right and wrong, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable is generally taken for granted already. Things are just kind of laid out for you. You have far fewer choices in a corporate society as opposed to an individualist society. So I'm thinking if you have to have people vouching for you to get all sorts of privileges, or at least it makes it a lot easier to have many privileges in society is to have a lot of people vouching for you, that will encourage people to form and maintain relationships. And if you then have to pay the price for what people you vouch for then do and, and abuse their freedom, then you'll be more careful who you vouch for. It just incentivizes stable relationships and living in community and nudging us towards a little bit more of a corporate approach. So I wrote a, a brilliant Twitter thread about this today. In an individualist society, most interactions are transactional and negotiated. So the transaction comes first, the relationship comes second. In a corporate society, transactions are primarily relational less needs to be negotiated because the rules are more widely known. So maybe you should have 10 law-abiding adults vouch for your character before you have sex. So in a corporate culture, condom stealthing wouldn't just be another thing to negotiate or, or risk committing a crime. So negotiating sex is a hairy thing. Like best to have all this part of a long-term committed relationship. So I'm shifting from my younger individualist self who just want to negotiate everything to recognizing that we just can't ask for what we want. We have to consider whether it's good for other people when we ask them for what we want. When people ask us for something, particularly people we like, our human default is to say yes. So asking for things carries a much bigger moral burden than I used to think. 
I once thought you could just ask for everything you want. And if you got com- permission, it was ipso facto moral. And I wasn't always a kind and considerate and generous lover. So I've been sensitized to this issue by Gert Hofstetter's cultural dimensions. So Gert Hofstetter is a Dutch psychologist. And here he is on individualism versus collectivism. Both words were used, as far as I know, for the first time in the 19th century uh, for political ideologies. Anything that ends on ism uh, sounds like a political ideology. And they had already from the beginning a very strong value content. Uh, they were felt to be either good or evil. Uh, in the 1920s, somebody used them as the opposite ends of one scale. And then in the 1960s, the word individualism also emerged in personality psychology and people started to uh, refer to individualist personalities. Nobody ever tried to talk about collectivist personalities, by the way. But I chose the term individualism versus collectivism when I needed uh, words to describe the differences between uh, national societies, differences that actually had been described before me by several different sociologists. So I didn't invent a dimension at all. It was clearly described in different sociological texts, but I used these terms for it. And now here's the definition. Individualism is a society in which the ties between individuals are loose. Everyone is expected to look after her or himself and the immediate family, father, mother, and children. And collectivism is a society in which individuals from birth onwards are part of strong in-groups, usually the family, sometimes the extended family, uh, sometimes the village society, sometimes a tribe. If I oppose the individualists and the collectivist society, uh, and I find that in collectivist societies, uh, people identify with we, they have a we identity. And in individualist society, obviously an I identity. In the collectivist society, they are, with a difficult word, exclusionist. They classify others as inner outgroup, and if they're outgroup, they're excluded. And in the individualist society, they, there is universalism. Other people are classified as individuals by their own particular characteristics. The competition in collectivist society is not between individuals, but between groups, between tribes. You could say they're often tribal societies. And in the individualist society, the competition is between individuals. Uh, when it comes to carrying out a task together, in the collectivist society, the relationship comes first, the task comes second. In the individualist society, the task comes first and the relationship may come afterwards. Then there is a distinction which comes actually uh, from the, the literature uh, between high context communication and low context communication. And uh, in high context communication, it means that many, that is for the collectivist society and that many things are obvious. Uh, so actually the communication can be short. Individualist societies, everything must be specified and therefore the communications take more words, they are more extensive. And the last thing that I want to bring up is that a key word in collectivist society is harmony. There should be harmony inside the in-group. Even if people disagree, they should maintain the superficial harmony uh, because otherwise the in-group will be weakened. It will, be, it will fall apart. In the individualist society, the idea is that confrontations can do no harm. They can sometimes be healthy. Now, how do we measure the position of a country on the individualism-collectivism dimension? It can only be measured relative to other societies. There is no absolute yardstick for it. And it is expressed in individualism scores, IDV. IDV values can be plotted on a scale from 0 to 100. And scores close to 0 stand for the most collectivist society, and scores close to 100 for the most individualist society. 
And here is a selection of 14 countries out of the 76 for which we have scores. And the highest score for individualism we find in the United States of America. On the high side, we found Australia, Britain, also the Netherlands, also Denmark, France, Germany. In general, we find European countries on the high individualism side. So as someone who grew up in Australia, I found Australia much more collectivist than America. I mean, for me, the difference is dramatic. So in Australia, you can you can uh, walk onto a neighbor's yard and just help yourself to the hose if you're thirsty and you don't have to worry about getting shot. There are far few th fewer things to be negotiated. So in Australia, you just show up at your friend's home. You wouldn't call ahead to make an appointment. So there was much more of a kind of informal, we're all in it together, mateship attitude in Australia. So for me, it was dramatically more collectivist uh, communitarian, collectivist, com corporate compared to the uber individualism of America. So in America, if you've got an a IQ over 100, you're likely to be highly ambitious. So in Australia, your ambitions are most likely to revolve around spending time with your mates and having a barbie and having a drinky and going to the beach and watching some cricket. So Australians don't tend to be nearly as individualist and as ambitious as Americans. So Americans, by and large, are, are frequently desperately trying to outshine their friends. In Australia, you know that outshining your friends is, is a recipe for social death. So mateship is a much stronger value in Australia than it is in America. Mateship much stronger value essentially in Orthodox Judaism than in Protestant culture. We find collectivist societies, low IDV scores in places like India, Japan, also in Russia, by the way, and the Arab countries, Mexico, and the lowest in China. What can we do with these scores? Well, we can, we can correlate them with hard data. And uh, I have a selection here of things that correlate significantly with the IDV scores. And first of all, wealth or poverty of a country. Wealthier countries tend to be more individualist, poorer countries to be more collectivist. So synagogues, the warmer the synagogue, usually the poorer the members of a synagogue. So the most affluent synagogues tend to be the most emotionally cold and the most emotionally hot the, the synagogue, the warmer the synagogue, the poorer the synagogue. So generally speaking, Orthodox synagogues tend to be a lot warmer than conservative and reform synagogues. Traditional synagogues tend to be warmer than modern Orthodox synagogues. Uh, the order of logic, in fact, is not that individualism comes first. It is that the wealth comes first and then the individualism follows. Collectivist societies have lower press freedom. Individualist societies have more press freedom. Uh, then uh, there are human rights. Uh, they were established by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, and they are having measured by a human rights index and the index is clearly lower for collectivist societies than for individualist societies. It must be said that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created by people from individualist societies. In the family, in the individualist societies you have higher divorce rates, in the collectivist societies lower divorce rates, often the uh, marriages have been concluded also by the families. And the ideal age for marrying is also different. That's an interesting piece of research. Uh, in the collectivist society, uh, the model relationship is of a somewhat older husband and younger wife. In the individualist society, it's smaller age differences between the spouses. Uh, another piece of research is about the pace of life. 
and the pace of life in collectivist societies is slower than the pace of life in the individualist societies, which can, for example, be demonstrated by measuring how fast people walk in the street if they don't have any particular place to go, just if they walk freely to go from A to B, uh, how fast do they walk. Then in language... So Gerd Hofstetter has these cultural dimensions on, on at least six to eight different scales. They're absolutely fascinating. Which there's linguists have looked at it, and not surprisingly, the languages of individualist societies use more the word I. Actually, the most individualist language is English, and it's the only language I know that writes I with a capital letter. Uh, there are other languages that write U with a capital letter. Uh, in the collectivist society, sometimes there are languages where the word I is more or less taboo and uh, where you are not supposed to use it. And the last one is about recent applications in social media. There is a difference visible. Individualist societies use social media for an active search and collectivist societies use it maybe uh, for search by on indication of the in-group or from communicating with the in-group. Now I want to say something about the relationship between individualism and power distance because it is clear that um, countries with a lower power distance are more often individualist and countries with a higher power distance are more often collectivist. Not always, but more often. But this turns out to be mainly the effect of wealth. Individualism is strongly correlated with wealth. Power distance, low power distance is somewhat correlated with wealth. And if we take that effect out, if we compare rich countries with rich countries and poor countries with poor countries, the correlation between power distance and individualism almost disappears. So that is the reason that I treat them still, although they are correlated, I treat them as two separate. Okay, what's going on with the middle class? What's going on with our energy problems? As the American standard of living plummets from spiking energy costs as the dream dies, the reaction of our leaders to this catastrophe has been highly revealing. <clears throat> A lot of them seem, what's the word, thrilled by the fact that Americans are suffering. And they are excited. They're not bothering to hide it. And they're excited because finally, with no vote in Congress, they're going to get their Green New Deal. They're going to get it by default. Now that you can no longer afford to drive your car, heat your house, you're going to be forced to switch what, to what they're calling renewable energy. This is the biggest possible change. Out with the old United States of America, in with the new. The leaders think it's pretty exciting, as well as, of course, highly lucrative for them and their donors. But wait a second, you may be wondering. Can we trust these people to develop and build an entirely new energy grid to run Western civilization? Do they actually know anything about energy? Do they understand how our current power grid works? Can they fix a go-kart? Can they operate a leaf blower? Do these people have any skills at all, apart from running corporate HR departments and giving TED Talks? Those are fair questions. To answer them, you might consider what has happened in Europe since the neoliberals seized control of the energy grid there. A Wall Street Journal piece from last fall pretty much sums it up. Quote, energy prices in Europe hit records after wind stops blowing. That's the headline. It turns out that windmills need wind in order to produce electricity. On a calm day, the blades stop turning and the lights go out. Now, you may have already known that, but the green energy people were completely shocked to see it. It took a lot of people by surprise, said one economist quoted in the paper. If this were to happen in winter, when we've got significantly higher demand, then that presents a real issue for system stability. So clearly we have a significant design flaw here, but this is 2022, so it's hardly insurmountable. You can just trust the science. The most obvious solution is to place enormous diesel-powered fans in front of the windmills. That way, wind farms will never be without wind and we will never be without electricity. It's pretty clever. Sandy Cortez likes that idea. But Joe Biden is thinking bigger than that. Biden plans to issue an executive order commanding the wind to blow. Now, we already know that our elected officials are in charge of the weather. That's the entire premise behind the Green New Deal. 
vote for us and we'll change the weather. So why not take it one further step? Americans want common sense weather control. From now on, per Joe Biden's order, it will be windy. Come on, man. We're bringing that press conference live when he gives it. So Joe Biden has said again and again that he is in favor of disarming Americans. And at the same moment, he's very much in favor of arming the Ukrainians. Maybe you should have given money to Joe Biden's son and you could keep your guns. We've just announced we're sending another $1 billion in weapons to Ukraine, sacred Ukraine. This is the 12th installment of military aid to Ukraine. That package includes rockets and anti-ship weapons systems. In all, Congress has authorized more than $40 billion of spending on Ukraine. And that includes a lot of money to pay the salaries of bureaucrats in Ukraine. You know, it's worth noting at exactly the same moment, just this past weekend, hundreds of Ukrainians in Kiev were photographed having a beach day. Over in this country, meanwhile, the border and the economy are both collapsing and our leaders are doing nothing about it because it's not important to them. As Mitch McConnell said, Ukraine is the most important thing in the world. Ukraine in January 6th and red flag laws. Why? Why are those things so important, but not you? Chip Roy is a member of Congress from Texas. Lukenbach, Texas, by the way. He joined. Is that true? Lukenbach, Texas? Yeah, I represent Lukenbach. It's, uh, you know. I don't see what's so heinous about sending some money to Ukrainian bureaucrats. You can't run anything without bureaucrats, all right? You can't run a country. You can't run significant organization. You can't run a military, all right? Bureaucrats are absolutely essential for the modern world. Okay. I've been reading this new biography of E.O. Wilson, scientist. E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature by Richard Rhodes. And uh, here's a section from chapter six, I believe, on warblers. So anyway, what happens when similar species of birds occupy the same areas of forest? What prevents these different species, these subspecies, from competing for resources until all but one of them are extinct? In other words, how often do we find multiple subspecies in the same place in nature? And what then can be learned from it, if anything, to help people get along. So apparently, the warblers divide out the living zones of the mature evergreen forest trees they share. So the Cape May warblers feed mostly on the top third of the 60-foot main spruce trees and in the outer zone of that foliage. Now, the black-throated green warbler feeds mostly in the middle third of the spruces in both the outer zone and the next zone inward toward the trunk. And the myrtle warbler feeds in the open bottom third of the trees that includes both the middle and inner zones and the open space around the trunk below the lower foliage down to the ground. So each species then prefers different prey. Prey that in turn prefers different zones of the trees where the warblers hunt. So the warblers prefer different species of insects that are in common with their preferred zones. And they warblers also differ in their feeding behavior. So different species move in different directions as they hunt. Some move vertically, some move tangentially, and some move radially, making more or fewer flights to other trees, spending more or less time hawking, meaning flying off after insects. And they are also varied in their energy levels from active to sluggish. So the warblers stake out spaces for themselves, niches, that minimize their competition, allow them to coexist stably in the same trees. So if I was to transla translate that to a multiracial, multicultural society, 
the message I, I take away is that different people, different birds have different gifts. They prefer different prey. And we shouldn't be shocked if different groups have different life results. So pretty interesting stuff. So even, even different warblers have different prey and prefer different areas of the trees. So E.O. Wilson uh, gathered with this bloke who specialized in, in the warbler. And uh, they had a common ambition. They wanted to pull evolutionary biology into a more solid base of theoretical population biology. So they wrote a series of audacious and speculative essays and nothing came of it. The program folded. But the gathering was a watershed. So we came away with a whole new confidence in the future of evolutionary biology. This is 1964. So in molecular biology, one spectacular discovery of DNA closely followed on the heels of another. So molecular biology became the glamour field. It attracted you know, the best students. So Yo Wilson wanted to rename his field evolutionary biology. So this is from scientist E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. Philosophers have long debated over whether it is the collective or the individual who should be viewed as superior and of more value, but rarely has a consensus been met. This unresolved debate is important because the prevailing views on this issue often determine how a society organizes itself, and thus the quality of life for its citizens. In this lecture we are going to examine a critique of collectivism by one of the most prolific philosophers of the 20th century, Ludwig von Mises. Mises was born in 1881. Okay, that's not what I want. No book, article, or I should say words, can capture the intensity of relationships in collectivist societies. So brilliantly smothering, in your face, sometimes in the form of kisses on the cheek, and invigorating are these relationships. Yeah, so life in Orthodox Judaism is much closer, right? People are much closer. They have less, they have less physical space. They have less mental space there's less social space you're much more of a collective than you are a series of individuals going your own way that the self is lost to the collective so the collectivist cultures tend to be much more physically demonstrative much more hands-on and the harmony of the group becomes more important than silly old you as isms individualism and collectivism are often politicized viewed as either good or bad despite their flaws to capture and explain cultural phenomena and the biases they evoke, these isms do hint at relational and learning styles that teachers should understand. Zaretta Hammond says, quote, I don't want to stereotype cultures in an oversimplified frame, but to simply offer the archetype of collectivism versus individualism as a way of understanding the general cultural orientation among diverse students in the classroom, end quote. Sociologist Geert Hofstad says, quote, in a collectivist society, the relationship comes first, the task comes second. In the individualistic society, the task comes first, and the relationship may come afterwards. This relationship-first approach is essential for American teachers to understand. When I lived in the country Georgia, when a guest entered your home, even if the guest came unannounced, you stopped what you were doing and served them. The person took priority 
over the task. Yeah, so in individualist societies, there's much less emphasis on hospitality and feeding people. So you'll notice in, in Scandinavian countries, they have much less of an idea, oh, if you've got a guest, you must, must provide them with food and drink. This is such a relational paradigm shift for many Americans that it seems wrong, leading to teachers misinterpreting students' cultural behavior as misbehavior and leading to students misinterpreting American teachers as cold, impersonal, and putting work ahead of people. As a culturally relevant teacher, the onus is on you, not the child, to bridge these cultural gaps. According to Hofstede's Cultural Dimensions Index, the United States is the most individualistic society in the world. This means many American teachers are going to have blind spots when it comes to their relational style with students. In the United States, we are often told to pursue aspirations and dreams for ourselves, it is a personal journey. It is believed that you must find yourself and create yourself. And if others stand in the way, you must continue to believe in yourself. The goal is to become self-sufficient and independent. And if that means leaving the collective, so be it. Social harmony, though a good thing, can also be a detriment to, to societal progress and self-growth. Hofstad says the key word in collectivist groups is harmony. There should be harmony inside the in-group. Even if people disagree, they should maintain the superficial harmony. Otherwise, the in-group will be weakened. This is why some of my students in South Korea, though knowing the correct answer in class, would refuse to raise their hands. They did not want to show off, but wanted to remain humble for the harmony of the group. So in my second grade report card, I didn't enter school until second grade. The teacher said, Luke is always very willing to share his opinions with the class. He just needs to learn to be more considerate of the slower thinker. This is also why Korean immigrants in the past needed to be coached on how to interview for jobs in the United States. The emphasis on advocating for yourself and bragging about your accomplishments was viewed as wrong. When interviewees were asked about their English abilities, they would downplay them despite speaking excellent English. Maintaining humility and not standing out was important for group cohesion. As teachers, it is our job to not only build relationships with students, but to see rela relationships in a new light. In collectivist cultures, interdependence is often seen positively. This is why, once you have built rapport and trust with students, you can use what Lisa Delpit calls a, quote, communicative style that appeals to affiliation, end quote. Asking students from collectivist backgrounds to do the work for you, the teacher, is a technique that works because it caters to a student's desire to belong. In fact, Delpit... Okay, so an Israeli politician said the quiet bit out loud. And he should not say the quiet bit out loud. He's been rebuked for wishing he could make Palestinians disappear. And this is just a basic fact of life. If your in-group has an enemy, why would you not wish for them to disappear? If you love your family, if you love your people, if you love your group, then why would you not wish for your enemies to disappear? So this guy is Matan Kahana, and he was caught on video saying that if he could push a button to make all Palestinians disappear, he would. So you hear it in a lot of right-wing talk radio about how evil the Palestinians are because they want the Jewish state to disappear. Well, in an intense conflict such as what the, the Israelis have with the Arab states around them, of course both sides wish their enemy would disappear. So Deputy Religious Services Minister... Matan Kahana, so he would be Orthodox Jew, made the remarks to high school students in a West Bank settlement. He was explaining his view that clashing narratives between Israelis and Palestinians were a major obstacle to peace. So he tried to be making the point that Israelis and Palestinians had no choice but to find a way to live together. 
there was a sort of button you could push that would make all the Arabs disappear, send them on an express train to Switzerland, I would press that button. But what can you do? There's no such button. Therefore, it seems we were meant to exist together in this land in some way. So he's part of the ruling coalition. And he has been reprimanded. And he's, he has apologized to some of my remarks were worded poorly. Well, he just said the quiet part out loud. Why would everyone and anyone not wish for their enemies to disappear? It's the most normal, natural, healthy reaction in the world. And it doesn't help relationships between groups when some groups get favorable treatment from the government, when some groups get to have their mortgages paid for by the federal government, for example. So Wall Street Journal here talking about Fannie Mae's new racial bias. Fannie Mae's new racial bias. The government-sponsored housing giant embraces race-based subsidies. By the editorial board. June 13, 2022, 6.52 p.m. Eastern Time. It was probably inevitable that the Biden administration would enlist housing giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to advance its woke agenda, and now it has. Last week, the government-sponsored enterprises released plans to promote housing equity that are chock-full of race-based subsidies. Fannie and Freddie have been under federal conservatorship since Treasury rescued them during the housing meltdown with a $190 billion taxpayer bailout. The Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, has since regulated their capital, liquidity, and underwriting, as well as the mortgages they can acquire. Trump FHFA Director Mark Calabria kept the monsters on a tight leash, but there was always a risk that a future administration would ease up and politicize home lending again. That day has come. In September, the Biden FHFA announced it would require Fannie and Freddie to prepare and implement three-year equitable housing finance plans that describe each enterprise's planned efforts to advance equity in housing finance. Translation, we must find ways to boost minority homeownership no matter the risk for taxpayers. The plans released last week might have been written by California Representative Maxine Waters. Central to Fannie's plan are special-purpose credit programs that increase access to credit and encourage sustainable homeownership for Black consumers. One program would assist Black borrowers with down payments. Most home buyers are required. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong when you start favoring people on the basis of race? Okay, maybe we should learn from Lizzo. She she had a lyric spaz that uh, offended fans, and she changed it, and they forgave her. So the song Girls was released Friday, updated Monday to remove a derogatory term for people with disabilities she said she did not use the word spaz with an intent to offend. So maybe maybe we should all learn from from Lizzo. Come on, guys, we don't wanna we don't wanna unnecessarily offend people, do we? Okay. Wonder what Tucker has to say. Expo in Germany showcased something called double decker seats in coach. If you're claustrophobic, you're going to want to take the bus. Jimmy Fallon is the host of Fox Cross America. He joins us to assess. Uh, Jimmy, would you get on a flight with a double-decker seat? I mean, man, it's bad enough there's already no dignity in flying coach, Tucker. Now I've got to get in this human centipede contraption where some guy's butt is in my face. Yo, 
I don't want to fly with somebody's body on top of me. And if I did, I'd just sit next to Al Franken. But shame on any airline that's just trying to find another way to gouge us for more money. Like, as it stands, there's no dignity in flying coach. Okay, come on. It's, call it, call it with the, the anti-capitalism. Let, let, let's get something uplifting here. Wonder what Alex Katahakis says to say. About why you love the book. And to also follow us on Instagram, which is at Alex Katahakis. Um, I also want to request that if you're watching this on YouTube, to please subscribe to our YouTube channel. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button below. So today I want to start with the quote of the day as usual. And today our quote is from John Dryden, who was England's first um, poet laureate. And of course, we're talking about reciprocity today. That is our topic. And um, the, his, the first poet laureate was named in 1666, which seems like an unimaginable date. Um, so consider that he was well known for creating certain poetic um, mechanisms, rhythms, uh, ways of writing. So he was quite revolutionary. But um, it sounds sort of old when you read the quote, but he says, how happy the lover how easy his chain, how pleasing his pain, how sweet to discover he sighs not in vain. And I think that's appropriate for Valentine's Day today as we think about um, how happy we can be in love as love, especially when we're reciprocating love um, to those around us. And how sweet his chain, um, how sweet it is to be chained to another, not in a perverted or destructive or dysfunctional way, but when we think about, you know, our heart is enchained, our heart belongs to someone else, there is a sweetness to that um, binding, if you will, and how pleasing his pain, um, that we are in pain if we lose our love. Um, we want to be in love, and um, our heart breaks terribly when we fall out of love, which is an essential part of just being a human being. And then finally, his sighs are not in vain. Uh, when we sigh, we have there's someone there um, who recognizes the sigh, who's there with us in our whatever it is, our pleasure, our exasperation, uh, but that we are enchained and um, with another. So this notion of reciprocity, I think, is really important in the language of love um, because reciprocity occurs when someone um, gives something to us and we automatically feel like we want to give something back. So some of you may remember there was a time when veterans um, would stand outside of supermarkets and give these little poppies on a wire and they would hand you the poppy. And if you took the poppy, the request was a donation, right? In a little bucket they had. And some people would get very off put by that because they didn't want to have to give anything back because the minute we receive something, we often feel like we have to give back. Um, the Harry Krishnas used this same strategy um, if you recall when airports were open a lot, uh, by walking up to you and handing you a flower, uh, which is a beautiful gesture. But if you took the flower, you had to be open-hearted to this person. And the request there again was a donation. You're not required to give the donation, but inherent in our humanity is this need to give back if somebody gives to us. And again, people could get very angry and even hostile to the people that were handing out flowers because they were defended against having to give something back. And sometimes the giving back is just a smile right? That's, that's the reciprocal movement. So if you feel obligated to give back, see if you can be open-hearted about it and less defended, rigid. Man, Laponius, you seem defended and rigid. Laponia says, what's guru of the day is selected to annoy and rage and ultimately humiliate his audience. Bro, let's learn about a racist researcher exposed by a mass shooting 
pretty scary stuff here. The work of Michael Woodley, a Briton who was cited by the teenager who killed 10 black people at a supermarket in Buffalo, included pseudo-scientific theories that have been used to justify racism. Nobody here believes in pseudo-scientific theories used to justify racism. Brussels. The researcher claims there has been an IQ decline in France linked to a large-scale migration from North Africa. Well, isn't that just a matter of true or false? He has co-written a book about the global decline of intelligence. Well, is it declining or is it not? He stated a relationship between ethnicity and cognitive abilities. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to faint over. Well, either these things are true or not. And he argues that humans can be divided into subspecies, a cornerstone of white supremacist ideology. Is the notion that humans can be divided into subspecies, is that just something that's unique to white supremacists? He was also cited, among other academic references, in a manifesto written by a teenager motivated by racist views who killed 10 black people at a supermarket in Buffalo last month. Despite his own extreme views, so these views are extreme, even though many of them are held by the majority of people who both study the topic or who think about the topic, the researcher Michael Woodley, 38-year-old British man, has been affiliated with Vrie University Brussels, one of Belgium's leading universities. And his controversial work was originally undertaken as he studied at some of the world's most prestigious academic institutions. The discovery that the government had cited Mr. Woodley's work shocked many academics. Why would they be shocked? How can you prevent uh, someone from citing you? Right? All sorts of people go out and do evil, and just because they cite you doesn't mean that you had a hand in their evil. But these academics said they hope this might now force institutions to confront questions about their responsibility toward society, academic rigor, and the space they give to extremist ideas. Well, many of these ideas cited in this article are held by a majority of experts in the field of intelligence, for example. So after Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein published The Bell Curve, a majority of experts in their area wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal pointing out that The Bell Curve is, is a product of consensus thought in their academic specialty. So we've got a Spanish researcher in population genetics says he was appalled when he heard the Buffalo government had tried to use science to justify his actions. So scientists in the field of population genetics are concerned about the misinterpretation of our findings. He scrutinized the manifesto for all references to his field. So you shouldn't read the manifesto, but he needed to because he's an expert. Now, the killer, apparently, he decontextualized scientific conclusions. But one person cited by the government stood out for his extremist views. Mr. Woodley whose expertise is in plant ecology, but whose work also includes research in human genetics and intelligence. Wow. That's, uh, that's really scary. 
As recession fears now grow, mortgage rates on the rise, inflation a 41-year high, and the Biden price hikes are as bad as ever. And while Biden is dismissing the likelihood of a recession, well, the fears on Wall Street, they are growing louder and louder. Now, all while consumer spending is now running out of steam, common sense Americans, they are continuing to suffer needlessly, all because of Joe Biden's failing far-left radical economic and anti fossil fuel agenda now from gas pump okay i want to hear more from this racist academic in terms of that i don't know stuffed shirt crisp mustache well-oiled hair collection of rampant geniuses that characterized the uh, the european and in particular the british landscape what do you think were the factors that produced such an explosion of brilliance in such a concentrated area for so this is michael woodley speaking with stefan molyneux so this is Dr. Michael A. Woodley of Meany. So he wasn't born Michael A. Woodley of Meany. He added that. So he's an attention seeker, right? An eccentric attention seeker lives in a castle. He chose to specialize in highly controversial academic topics. And now he's absolutely devastated that there might be some downside to this. So a lot of people want attention, but then find where they actually get it that they can't handle it. Right, many many of the things we most want, once we get them, we we can't handle them. So I, I reached out to him for an interview. He, he's hasn't responded. According to people who know him, he's not really cut out to be the object of negative attention. And yet, he's apparently a desperate attention seeker. Now attention's come his way, and he's hiding out and he's trying to cover up much of his work. Practically, a relatively short period of time. I think you kind of had a you kind of had a, a, a this, this term that's used by certain futurists called the singularity, and the singularity is this idea that you get this kind of acceleration accelerated returns process. So the example we like to give is you have these you have these artificial intelligences that can design the next generation and it's a little bit better than the precursor one, and so on and so forth, and it does so in a kind of recursive fashion. I think we hit a sort of singularity type situation in the Victorian era because what we had in the Victorian era, in, partic in particular Britain and America, these sort of Anglophone nations, was you have this very high per capita concentration of genius, of scientific genius. And if you just, you just looked at London in, say, the 1850s or 60s, you, had, you, you, you would have had Galton, you would have had Darwin, you would have had Babbage, you would have had Kelvin, you would have had Maxwell. So this uh, video has been on YouTube for almost two years, so obviously YouTube doesn't find it racist. You would have had, I, I could go Isambard Kingdom Brunel, you know, I could, I could reel off a whole list of these, these extremely eminent people, each of whom are associated with, an, with a groundbreaking work or development, which in its own way is as significant as Einstein's theory of relativity. I walk around London, I don't see those people anymore. You don't, you don't get those those people. You have a kind of third or fourth fiddle type minds who who, who have who tend to work in groups and tend to sort of uh, bureaucratize the way they do things. And, and they're very good at organizing people. I and mean, that's often how they generate their rewards um, more so than, than by actually being innovative, groundbreaking risk takers. Yeah, and that's a bunch what... of bureaucratic busybodies in lab coats these days, it seems. Well, Exactly. Yeah, so Michael A. Woodley considers himself very much a, a risk taker and an innovator, and uh, I'm sure he's done some risk, risky, innovative thing. But uh, does he now have the stuff to hold up under under the barrage that comes when you do risky, innovative things? Right, the world doesn't just uh, bend over for you once you choose to do risky, innovative, unpopular things. That's yes, absolutely right. And that's certainly been my experience of sort of organized science, as I call it. Uh, there's really no See, this is his experience that uh, people don't want to do risky, innovative things. But he is braver than that. And yet he's been as quiet as a mouse since this controversy came out, uh, what, two weeks ago. Absolutely quiet as a mouse. Why isn't he speaking up if he's this innovative 
know, brave man willing to do innovative, you know, risky work. And, and what's with adding of Mini, like uh, claiming this aristocratic title? It's like Baron Joseph Cotter. No room. There's absolute hostility for anyone who is, is in any way tries to be an original thinker. It's just not, it's not tolerated. But the, the going back to the Victorians, science revolved around. See, he's inordinately proud of being an original thinker, but once, once the, once the the time comes to pay the toll, right? He burned the coal of being an innovative thinker, but when it comes time to pay the toll, he doesn't want to pay the toll. He's just disappeared. He's apparently doesn't have the stuff to stand up under this withering criticism. Found these gentlemen, these these brilliant people who were recognised by their peers as being profoundly brilliant. And as such, they were able to regulate, to a certain degree, the ecology of science. And this led to a science which was far more streamlined in terms of its pipeline through which uh, major discoveries could translate into major applications, for example. And also people that then tended to value knowledge for knowledge's sake. And this was sort of bound up. So Michael, he values knowledge for knowledge's sake until now. He's just disappeared like a mouse when he's getting some bad press. With their sense that you were in a way doing God's work but science was kind of a revelatory act. The ideology behind this was not theology behind this was known as neo-Thomism. So it's just neo-Thomistic, this peculiar and very good mixture of sort of Christian values and scientific inquiry, which led to this, this idea that the, you know, the truth content of an idea is absolutely sacred to tell lies, to deceive was considered the most serious of sins. Anyone who engaged... So he's all about the truth, but when he gets some negative publicity, he just absolutely disappears. So Woodley has been explicitly racist, says Mr. Sandoval, who started an online petition to get the British researcher suspended and his PhD revoked. So I believe Michael Woodley is a true seeker. He only had the best of intentions, but he's obviously a huge attention seeker and participated in a way of life that is simply not compatible with, with reality. Right? If you want to be a huge attention seeker and do really edgy, risky, innovative stuff, you better have the right stuff to be able to stand up when it feels like the world is crashing down on top of you. He has a history of spreading racist, white supremacist theories. He is questioning a consensus based on decades of research. Really? Is that really true? So the University of Brussels has suspended its relationship with him. University says it was shocked that an element from a paper by Mr. Woodley had appeared in the manifesto of the Buffalo gunman. And a scientific community from the committee from the university will now investigate Mr. Woodley's work to decide on further steps. Mr. Woodley declined to comment. Wait, come on, man. If you were, if you were this brave truth seeker as you have portrayed yourself, why are you not commenting? So... Woodley is described as absolutely devastated by the turn of events. Why? Why could you not see that your edgy, risky work would get news attention and it would not be favorable? So the Leo Apostle Center is an interdisciplinary research institute at the university. And Woodley has published dozens of highly technical articles in a variety of respected, peer-reviewed scientific journals which people who lack the specific scientific expertise would find hard to evaluate. So at the core of Mr. Woodley's article cited by the gunman is an argument that human beings can be scientifically divided into subspecies. So one table, he compares humans with a number of animal species, including jaguars and leopards. 
This was used in the Buffalo Gunman's manifesto. Or just because the Buffalo Gunman uses it doesn't mean it's wrong. Theories like the one Mr. Woodley asserted have long been a mainstay of pseudoscientific attempts to justify slavery, colonialism, and Nazism and have been widely rejected by contemporary mainstream academics. Have they been widely rejected by contemporary mainstream academics with specialties that akin to Mr. Woodley's? Right, so if you don't know anything about the particular field in which he works, uh, you're then widely rejecting his, his theories. So his academic interests over the course of his career have been eclectic, including papers on ways to communicate with the dead and intelligence in parrots, in addition to human genetics and intelligence. So Michael Woodley completed a doctorate in plant ecology, just like Edward Dutton did his doctorate in religion. And a mainstream academic publisher that... Uh, 